If you have Bibles with you, please turn them to the Gospel of Matthew, the very beginning of the New Testament. This is going to be awesome. I am going to, I thought of putting, of putting an applause meter up front after I finish this, which would be silly, but, you know, naming a bunch of names and reading them, which is really a challenge, I'm going to go for it. Let me read the passage, verses 1 through 17, the first 17 verses of the New Testament, recorded by Matthew, and it starts this way. Read with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and the Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amimadad, and Amimadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. Let's pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the words that Matthew recorded. Thank you that they are really, really important. And thank you that we have them. We have this record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Father, we're so grateful. Thank you for this time together today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, take my weak and humble words and and, uh, understanding of this text and help us, Lord, to understand this more deeply. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us wonderful and great things from this so that this Advent would be special to all of us. We We would know the story of God and the story of the birth of Jesus and its importance even better. And I pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your worthy name. Amen. So last week we began our Advent series uh, uh, under the theme of What Child Is This? Um, our first message centered around basically comparing the story of Christmas that is being broadcast in our world and in our community uh, all the time, right? The, the, the Santa story, the, the Christmas lights, the tree, that story, and comparing it to the story of the first Christmas ever, the real story, the true story of Jesus coming into this world as a baby. 
And so we looked at, you know, all of the things that go on in that story that is being told, you know, everything from, you know, the lights to the tree to, yes, the guy in the red suit, the, the, the parades, right, and, and the gifts and the giving and, and the food and the movies and the eggnog, amen? It's, it is, it's awesome. It's wonderful stuff. And uh, we, we really enjoyed it. But we also, I think, learned a little bit last week, well, actually a number of things. I think we, we learned last week that this story um, is potentially the story, if we're not careful, where we get to be the hero, right? We get to be the hero in the story, giving gifts to others, particularly to our little ones, right? We, we, we need to be careful about that because that is clearly, and I think you know that, not the, the real story. So we agreed last week that that story that is being told in our world, in our culture, is a powerful story. It, it's, it's been, they've been at it for a long time. We've been helping them for a long time make that story pretty, pretty awesome. It's been going on literally, quite frankly, for about 100 years. It's actually very recent, this story of St. Nicholas and all of the you know, surrounding details to it. It's relatively recent in history. But we also concluded that it's, listen, it's just a story, right? It's just a fantasy, right? Um, what the church and Christians have done with that story we saw last week over the past 50 to 60 years, mainly, quite frankly, due to the elimination of anything to do with Jesus and nativity story and, and, and what the time and season is really all about, is we've really got our knickers in a knot and got bent out of shape and really ended up doing three things, I think, as the church and as Christians. Number one, Many, not all of you, but many, have given in and basically said, well, what's the point? I mean, we might as well just join in and enjoy the story with everyone else. After all, you know, we don't want to be seen to be negative Nellies or Grinches, right? We, we, we don't want to be critical, and we don't. And so what we'll do is, what we'll do is we'll, with, with everyone in our community, with our neighbors, with everyone else, we'll celebrate that story, we'll be part of it, but what we will do is privately in our homes, in our churches, we'll celebrate Jesus. How's that going for you? Actually, I want to suggest this to you, that that's exactly what our culture wants. Our culture wants Christians to keep this private and not bring it into the public square. And many of us have tried bringing it into the public square, and we get ridiculed and criticized, and so we're like, we'll just keep it in the house. And so that's one of the things we end up doing. Secondly, you, you look at it, and, and we become really critical. I mean, we looked at this last week, where the church, people, Christians, become really, really critical, right? We get freaked out about Starbucks not having Christmas symbols on their cups. And it's a red cup. Like, I don't know. And, what's that? and when people use Xmas instead of Christmas or Happy Holidays, right? And we become really, really critical. And, of course, you know how that goes, right? Well, yeah, two things. First, it makes us look like the judgmental Grinches that people think we are. It does. It makes us look that way. But secondly, honestly, I, th- I think that's one of the reasons why we, we, we're reticent, we're shy about sharing the true story. And it gets us off our game. Instead, we're, we're being critical. So here, here's, here's a thought for you. Here's a thought for you this Christmas. I don't know if any of you are suffering from this problem or have in the past or will. Uh, just relax, okay? It's just a story. It's actually a pretty fun story. It's just a fantasy. We don't need to get worried about it. Think Star Wars. Okay? It's just a story, right? It's not necessarily in and of itself 
evil. evil. So last week we concluded a few things as we prepare our hearts for this Advent series. We concluded that the world is doing a really good job with that story. Number one, they're doing a great job. Awesome movies and, and decorations and parades. They don't need our help, right? They don't need the church's help with that story. They're doing a great job. Secondly, we learned this important lesson, which should free us from our need to be critical. It isn't their job to tell the best story ever, is it? It isn't their job. Why, why do we put that on people? Why do we put it on the district of Squamish to get that nativity scene back there on that empty lot at the end of Cleveland every year that's been taken away? It's not their job. Thirdly, what we learned is it's our job. That's our job. We're the ones who are supposed to be telling everyone the true story of what's going on in this world. So I, I want to give you a little example. As last week, you know, we, we looked at Mary's story, Joseph's story, and, and we learned that from that story on the first advent, we learned, first of all, that what child is this? He is God. We learned that. But we also learned that Mary and Joseph had plans for their lives, right? They were going to have a baby, not a baby yet. They were going to get married, pardon me, have a wonderful week-long marriage. They were going to, you know, build, you know, a house together, and they were going to start their family at some point in time. And God comes along and says, plans have changed. It's not the way it's going to work. You're going to be pregnant like in 30 minutes by the Holy Spirit, Mary. And Joseph, you're not going to divorce her. You're going to stay with her and you're going to look after her. And you're not going to actually be with her until she gives birth to my son. Change of plans. And so we looked at them. We said, well, what's the best story ever in that? Like, where do we see the Christmas story in that? Well, we saw it in the words that were used to Mary by the angel Gabriel. Oh, favored one, God has found favor with you. It's the word kerios. The root word is charis, which is grace. The good news story is that God showed his grace upon Mary and upon Joseph and of all of us by sending Jesus into this world. Last uh, week at our small group was honestly, in my opinion, anyway, one of the best small groups uh, I've been to in a long time. Um, Lorraine was leading it and asked basically one question that, that just started everything off. And she asked the question, hey, can anyone share like a time in your life when uh, God changed your plans? You, know, you had plans for your life, the way things were going to go, and God showed up and changed your plans. Now, one thing that I've learned about leading a small group is when you ask a question, you need to be quiet. <laughs> because, but but that, that, that pause there is really disconcerting. But very quickly, CJ spoke up, and it went around the room. People were just sharing and sharing and sharing about times in their lives when very, you know, they were, they were planning to go down a really not-so-good road or whatever it might be, and then God changed their plans and stepped in. And by the grace of God, things turned out really well in their lives because instead of following their plan for their life, they followed God's plan for their lives, and it was incredible. And so at the end of that conversation, Lorraine again asked, one more question. Any further thoughts? Because it was time to go to prayer, right? And, well, I'm, you know, not one who can not share a thought, but it was, it was right there on my heart. It was right there at that moment. And I said, guys, there's how you share the Advent story. You're talking to a friend, and you can just share. Mary and Joseph, you know, they had plans for their lives, and, um, but God showed up and changed plans. And, and in my own life, there was a time when, you know, I was thinking of doing this, and it would have been very tragic in our family or for my life in the future. And fortunately, God showed up and changed my plans. How about you? How about you? I mean, it, amen? This is how we find a way to gospel into our community. And I think it's a wonderful example. It was wonderful. So 
What we have here today we're going to be looking at further is we're going to be looking at this first Christmas one more time and looking at it from the perspective of today. We're going to be looking at it uh, from the perspective of last week. What child is this? He is God. And this week, he is man. He's a man, this child. So your title is, He is a Man. I'm going to show you hopefully three things today. He's a man for us. He is a man for God. And lastly, the best story ever. Right? Where in this story today, where in this genealogy is the best story ever? The Advent story for us today. So look at the first verse with me again this morning. It says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it's interesting. This text that we're in today is, is, is literally, this is the first verse of the New Testament Bible. 400 years after the prophet Malachi last spoke to the people of Israel and warned them, quite frankly, uh, God went silent, completely silent. And then we have Matthew, the tax collector, called by Jesus to follow him, writing a record and beginning the New Testament with these words. So that's pretty interesting. Some of you might be asking, well, okay, what does a genealogy like this have to do with Christmas, really, right? Now, you'll remember from last week, the very next verse says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So, so this genealogy is kind of like a prologue to the story. It's actually more than that. It's incredibly important. It's very important, prelude. It's for, important for many reasons. First of all, it is this. It's Jesus' family tree. <laughs> We're going to look at some of the individuals very briefly in conclusion today, but it's his family tree. And so that's important. That's an interesting thing. And we're also going to see this, mor- this morning, as I said, what an interesting family it is. And so we notice that it's a, it's a book of the genealogy, which literally from the Greek means something around like a genesis, the beginnings of Jesus. And we'll see from another passage how interesting that is. But it's about his family tree, his origins. It's a record of where he's come from. It's important. Uh, not this past summer, but the summer before, Janice and I were in Nova Scotia, uh, Cape Breton, and uh, went there to, to uh, bury my mom beside my dad. And then we spent some days in Halifax, got to go to Pier 1. If you ever get to go to Halifax East Coast, which you should, you go to Pier 1, it was one of the first um, uh, immigration centers for people coming from Europe by boat into our country. And they have, they have a, a really neat thing there. It's kind of like Ancestry.com. Anybody ever heard about that? You know, I'm a little reticent about going on Ancestry. I've heard some people go on that and they find out strange things about <laughs> their family or not their family. But anyway, you can go there and you can actually ask for records if you had someone who came in that way from Pier 1, and my grandfather, my Grampy Davies, uh, came over from Wales, and I knew he did, and I had an approximate time, and I went there, and they, they searched the records for you, and it was really cool, because I had I, this young lady, she was really, like, couldn't find it at first, and, you know, because names get spelled a little differently sometimes in the older records, and then finally she found my grandfather, and I realized uh, from the records that my grandfather came over at the age of nine with two of his siblings, there were seven in total, he came with his mother first, and dad and the, oh, probably his father first, and just two of his brothers. And then mom and the rest of the kids came over about a year and a half later after dad and, the, and his brothers got settled. But they, they gave me the, a picture of the boat that he came on, the manifest, the records, the signatures. It was really, I'd never done anything like that before. I actually looked into our family background and where they've come from. I mean, I've heard stories at Christmas when 
my grampy would have a couple of, yeah. And, you know, he'd start talking about uh, his family, right? And there were the in-laws and the outlaws. But anyway, that's all I knew. I'd never done any studies in that. So it's, it's interesting to me, actually, as I thought about this, in our apparently enlightened, scientifically advanced, post-postmodern, post-post-church culture, that we place so little value on things like genealogies and family trees. And we do. The truth is, experts in education will tell you that in our world today, mainly because, yes, of the, the, the Internet and, and social media, etc., but really it's been, it's been brewing for about 40 to 50 years, we are a culture of young people in our world today who know a, lot, a little about a lot of things. A little about a lot of things. But the truth is, we have very little depth, most of us, in any important areas. Unless, of course, we go on to university and further. But even then. And so that is why today, quite frankly, we have so many people who are so outspoken, right? On social media, whatever it might be. You know, you've got the fanboys of your radical atheists who are like, bing, bang, boom, boom. Just a couple of quotes. But pull them aside and go a little deeper and ask some serious questions. And they're like, you know, it's, it's just not, I don't know if you get the point there, but we know a lot. And you see, the whole difference is, the whole difference is, This is really about history. Now, again, many of you are probably too young to remember this, but I remember back in uh, 1979, there was a a board game was invented by some guys in Montreal. Anybody know the name of that board game? (laughs) Some of you are older than you look. Trivial Pursuit, right, exactly. You know, for the next 10 years, it was the number one gift given at Christmas to people. Everybody wanted to be playing Trivial Pursuit. They had TV shows popped up about it. And just, just for your knowledge, by the way, the, the term trivial or trivia simply means of little or no value. <laughs> but we were good at it. <laughs> yes. And we liked it. On the other hand, there's something called history. Going deeper, Right? which has depth and is ultimately, listen, history is about the story, the story of God woven together with our story. That's where we get the word history, his story. It's really, really important. And listen, it was radically, deeply important in the days of Matthew. And that's why he's recording this. Ancestry was critically important in the first century. The temple in Jerusalem at the time, which existed at the time, held all the records The genealogies of every family was held in scrolls in the temple in Jerusalem. It was incredibly important in the culture in that day. Every land purchase, every decision that was made related to work, career, where you could live, purchases of land, sales of land, depended upon the genealogies, which would tell people who, in fact, owned the property and from whom the history of that family and the genealogy. So it was really, really important. So, so what Matthew was doing here, it, it literally as he begins the New Testament, is he's essentially saying this. He, he's making a legal case for who Jesus is, and he's saying, I'll tell you what, go to the temple, look it up, what I'm just saying and what I've written will be proven to you. The records are there. What I've just read, what he wrote, the records were in the, te- in the temple. Now, this is what's really quite fantastic about this story that we're looking at today. The real fantastic part is 
this claim by Matthew that he's making, they believe that he wrote his gospel. I'll have to preface it this way. He wrote his gospel approximately around A.D. 40 to 55. There's some based on the manuscripts and when they're found and they're dated. It's somewhere between A.D. 40 and 45, which is important fact. Again, hear me when I say this. He's saying, go to the temple, check it out for yourselves. The records that I've just quoted to you are there about Jesus. So every Jew knew that the records would be there. And here's really the most fantastic part about this claim. First, they would see, in fact, two things about Jesus from this first verse. They would see that he it falls in both the racial and the royal lineage that the Messiah must come from. He comes from the son. He is the son of Abraham, the racial Jewish lineage, and he is from the royal lineage of King David. And so they would see that. They would also have to act fast, Matthew is probably going to suggest to them, because Jesus has already predicted something would happen. Matthew knows about this before he writes his gospel, and he's probably been preaching it for many, many years. Jesus is recorded in Matthew 24 as predicting that that temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. No stone would stand upon stone. It would be complete rubble. And in the year A.D. 70, it happened. And so what is really fantastic about this record, really fantastic about this record, is this is the last claim that could ever be made to a Messiah. All the records in the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed. The Jewish people today, if a Messiah was to come forward and say, I'm him, I'm the Messiah, follow me, they'd have no way to prove it. The last proof that they have is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that rather exciting, don't you? That's fantastic news. That's why this genealogy is really, really amazing. Jesus is the last claimant to the throne as Messiah. And from that day and until today, there is no way for the Jewish people to verify that fact, unless, of course, they come to the Gospel of Matthew and read it and go, huh. And you know what? One of the ways that many people witness to and, and, and why we see a, a number of Messianic Jews, people coming to faith in Yeshua, in the Messiah today, is because they end up reading this and then going to Matthew 24 and going, and that is actually one way that people are witness to. So it's wonderful. So finally, the gene- genealogy, look, it makes it clear that Jesus, the one born on the first Christmas day, is a man. He comes in the lineage of other men. And so Matthew tells us that his name is Jesus Christ, which is not his first name and his last name, right? I've said that before. I know it's not funny, but it's not his first name and his last name, right? Uh, Jesus, Yeshua, uh, reminded the Jewish people, of course, of Joshua, the one who led the people from the promised land into the promised land, right? And, And it literally means he will save his people. He will save his people from their sins. Christ means Messiah of God, God's anointed one. So the genealogy shows us that this child is fully a man, but it is in John's gospel, actually, that it tells us that he tells us that he is, as we learned last week, both God and man. Now, some of these verses are very familiar with, uh, to you, but let's, let's review them because it'll take us to seeing this very clearly this morning, I think, in a really powerful way. John records in the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning, right, was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made. Most of us, I think, know these words, as I said, well, but John doesn't open with the birth of Jesus Christ, does he? He doesn't open with the birth. Matthew and Luke do. They open their Gospels with the birth of Jesus. Mark really jumps right into his ministry at 30 years of age. But John is actually beginning here with what we call the the prologos. This is actually about Jesus before the foundation of the world when he is with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are all, hear this, spirit. God is spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are spirit in heaven together before the foundation of the world. And so God, who is spirit, existed as Father, Son. John opens telling us that the word was, look, with God, and that he was God, that he is God, and that when it came time to create the world, all things that we see in this world, he spoke things into existence. All things that we see that have been made were made by him and through him. John then goes on in verse 14, of course, to really flesh this out. (laughs) And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So listen, just imagine again, we have to not just imagine this, we have to absorb this. The God of the universe who is spirit, he's neither male nor female, he is spirit, he reveals himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, chooses, the Son does, to take on flesh, to become one of us. I wonder sometimes to myself, if I was there and I was in that position, would I do that? For those who have rebelled against me, don't like me, don't really want to go to church on Sunday, don't want to worship me at Christmas, would I do that? Well, thankfully, I'm not him because he did. So John declares that this God, the Logos, the Word of God, became flesh. He became a man, and that this man was seen, and what was seen was the glory of the Father in him. Years later, in case anyone doubted what John was saying, I mean, John is almost like 90 years of age, so this is, this is probably like 30, 40 years after he's written his gospel. He records these words, again, at the very beginning of his letter, 1 John, right? There's three letters that he wrote, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. He writes this, that which was from the beginning, again, in case we didn't pick up on that, Jesus was from the beginning. Look at these words, which we have heard. I heard him preach. I heard words come out of his fleshly body, which we have seen with our eyes. Look, I looked upon this man. I walked with him for three years. I saw him get nailed to the cross. I saw him buried and dead. I saw him risen from the dead. I saw him. It gets better. Which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. I love that. In his relationship with Jesus, in his fleshly human body as a man, these bros hugged. They touched each other, shoulder to shoulder. It was deep affection. This is a man. 
Jesus is a man. And that's one of the things that Christmas tells us. So it's very significant. We see that he is a man for God, which is really, it's significant that he's a man for us, but when we see that he is a man for God, well, that's, that's the real key for us today. So, so number one, I hope I've, you've seen this in the genealogy, and we'll see a couple of other things in conclusion, but what child is this? He's a man. Just like every other man in this room, but also every woman in this room, he took on flesh. He became human, just like the rest of us. Secondly, he's a man for God. And where we see this really, really interestingly is, you know, there's another genealogy in the Gospels. I mean, we we just read one, right? But there's another genealogy, and it's in Luke. And interestingly, Luke waits until uh, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit and the Father have shown up. The Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove. The Father shows up and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is there. The Trinity of God before the foundation of the world is there at the baptism. And then right after that, Luke decides to record the genealogy. But it's slightly different. Luke begins this way in chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. <laughs> Again, the details are awesome. Being the son, as it was supposed, <laughs> of Joseph, the son of Heli. So that's interesting, right? What, what do you notice, first of all, is really different about this genealogy? It's the opposite direction, right? It's not from Abraham down to the Christ. It starts at the Christ, right? And his father, as was supposed, I love those words in there. Matthew wrote that. I didn't, but it's in there like, we know he really wasn't his father, as the story goes, of Joseph. And so this genealogy is wonderful, being the son as supposed. So that's one way it's different. But in the other way that it's different is, is if you look at the genealogy in Matthew, it's all about the father of, the father of, the father of. And every here, it's about the son of, the son of, the son of. And what's really remarkable about Matthew's gospel is beautiful. Matthew doesn't stop at Abraham. Matthew doesn't stop at Abraham. He concludes with this. He is the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. All the way back to the beginning. That's interesting, isn't it? So I got a question for you. How many perfect men have you ever met? Anybody? Most of the ladies in the room are going, that's an easy question, right? Yeah. Not a single one. Well, listen, we know that there has been at least one perfect man in history. Do we not? What's his name? Jesus. Jesus. There are actually two other individuals who were perfect. One of them was a man. Go figure. Adam and Eve, right? Do you notice here that Adam is called the son of God? He was. Adam was born perfect. Adam also was not born of a woman, was he? He was fully formed, as was Eve, as an adult. 
and placed into the garden by God. And so we can say that in the beginning anyway, Adam and Eve were perfect. They were without sin. And that's the way God planned it. God created his son, the son of God, Adam. But of course, as I won't ask from time to time, um, you remember how that turned out, right? You remember how that turned out. You guys all know your Bibles. It's actually even referenced here in Luke's genealogy, the way that he puts it, because if you look at it, he, you know, he, he, you know, the first generation after Adam is not Seth, is it? Who were the firstborn children of Adam and Eve? After the fall, after sin had been brought into the world, who were the ones who were born in sin? Cain and Abel. What happened there? The first brother relationship, one brother murders the other. No more perfect men. No more perfect world. None whatsoever. It's terrible. So the first son of man, born of the first son of God, becomes a murderer. And, and this is the one man, for many reasons, why Jesus is required to be, and our scripture teaches this, the second Adam. Why Jesus must, in fact, come and be the second Adam. The second son of God. Why? He needs to be a man for God and a man for us. It's critical. God promised... After Adam and Eve sinned, we know that in Genesis 3.15, he promised that another son would be born of a woman, not of a man, and that he would become the Savior. And so the Savior, Jesus, had to be a man for God. By being fully man for God, living the perfect life that we cannot live, dying the death, paying the penalty that we should pay for our sins, right? By doing all of that, God is able to, in Christ, forgive you, justify you so that you can be forgiven and therefore making us all who place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, please hear this, sons and daughters in Christ and of God. John, again, um, makes this pretty clear in his gospel. It's beautiful the way he puts it. Um, And it's sad at the same time because Jesus was the Messiah, Yeshua, of the people of Israel. And it's recorded in John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, say this, He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's a sad testimony, isn't it? Of not just the Jewish people, um, whom Matthew in particular desperately was writing this gospel for, his own brothers and sisters, Jewish people, that they rejected Jesus. But also, anyone today who hears the good news of the gospel, the truth of the Advent story and why it happens, and still, regardless, rejects the Savior. It's sad. So number three, how is this the best story ever again? How do we arrive at the best story ever? Well, 
In Jesus, we, we've already declared, I've declared or suggested to you from the Scripture, we have a person, a person who is fully man for God, and he's fully God for you and for me. And so I hope you can see that. In order, listen again, for God to justify you, to forgive you and I, someone, someone has to stand in our place. Someone has to atone for what you've done, what I've done, what all of us have done, what everyone, every human being since Adam and Eve have done. Someone has to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. If no one does, if no one's required, then God is not just, is he? And not just any person, not just any person must stand in that stead, right? He must be perfect. He must be holy. He must be righteous. He he can't be just any person, but he must be a man born of a woman who would be perfect. In Christ, God's only begotten Son, begotten of the Holy Spirit, God has the perfect man who will take away the sins of of all the world. So for you and I, listen, you and I, we get a man who is God for us, right? Who becomes one of us, and in every way, in every way, go through it. We don't have time this morning, but go through the Gospels and read his life. In every way, he identifies with you and I, in our struggles, in our burdens, in our suffering, and even in our death. He identifies with us, becoming the answer to our biggest struggle our greatest enemy, death itself. Death itself. But there's more to how this is the best story ever. There are 42 names listed in Matthew's record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We don't know a lot about um, some of them, but we do know a lot about some of them, right? And so a question about, I have for you as we come to this conclusion and look at this are you proud of every member in your family tree and your, right? Because I got to tell you, on my grampy's side, there were some festers, okay? There were some people that, you know, we just didn't really talk about at Christmas, right? They weren't invited to Christmas, let's put it that way. You know, if they were going to stay in Cape Breton and not come to Toronto, it was good. It's going to be a good Christmas, right? I think many of us have people like that. Most of us probably have someone like that. But a quick look at Jesus' family tree is really interesting, isn't it? There are no perfect people here. I mean, we know that. They've all been born after Adam and Eve and in sin. We know that. But there are absolutely no perfect people. I mean, let's just start with Abraham. Do you remember the time when Abraham was like, I'm a little worried that the king might kill me. So listen, dear wife, why don't you just claim to be my sister? And like, if he wants to take you as his wife, and you know, at least I'll be saved because I'm Abraham, right? And yeah, real strong man. Real strong man, right? But then there's also King David, isn't there? David's uh, uh, not a perfect man. We know that. Um, We know there was an evening there where David, in in all of his power and his strength, he happened to be on the roof, and he looked across the way and through a window, and he saw a beautiful, beautiful young woman, and he just had to have her. He had to have her. And he had her summoned, and she came to his his uh, bedroom, and he slept with her, and she got pregnant, and in a way to cover up that pregnancy, he decided to have her husband, Uriah, one of his chief um, um, commanders in his army, put on the front line so he could be killed, so that his sin could be covered up. What's also interesting in this lovely genealogy is that we have five women mentioned in this genealogy. That's, That's unheard of in this day. 
genealogies don't record the women. Jesus' family tree does. Now, some of the women people would get, like particularly uh, Tamar, Rahab, some would suggest Bathsheba. I don't think so. I think if Bathsheba was alive today, she would fall under the hashtag me too, taken advantage of. She had no way of refusing the king, did she? So she was involved in an adultery, but I think it's unfair to call her an adulteress. But we have Tamar and Rahab. We, I mean, there are prostitutes. Now, th- these are redeemed women who, who did good for God, but they're listed in the genealogy. There's also um, uh, Ruth, of course, who's listed in this genealogy, and she, she was a Moabite, right, which is like a total outcast, a total outsider. Some of the Jewish people were like, no, no, God is not going to forgive them. God is not going to invite that woman from that tribe into his family. They're in Jesus' family. They're in his genealogy. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. And, of course, there's Mary. Mary is the last woman mentioned in the genealogy. Martin Luther, the the great uh, theologian and uh, pastor from the Reformation, once said this. He said, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. That's pretty good news, isn't it? So finally, here it is. This is why the best story ever is in this text and what we've looked at today. I hope you realize that the genealogy of Jesus Christ didn't end with him, right? I mean, just think of his apostles and all of those who followed him, the the woman who washed his feet at the Pharisee's table, who was a woman of the street, who loved him and was saved by him and forgiven by him, the Samaritan woman, on and on it goes. There's no one. These are all people, men and women, who are born into Christ spiritually. Amen? And so this genealogy doesn't end with Christ. It doesn't end with the end of the New Testament. Friends, if you're here today and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you know him as Lord and Savior, you're in his genealogy. It's still being written today. And if you haven't done that yet today, you can do that this morning. And you too can can become a child of God and be listed one day in the genealogy, the record, the Lamb's book of life that will be read out one day in heaven. Pray with me, would you?